I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by film and content specialist Cam Maitland and Norm Wilner, senior film writer of Now Magazine and host and producer of the Someone Else's Movie and Now What podcasts. If you are alive and into pop music in 1994, there is every chance you owned one or all of the following newly released CDs. Definitely maybe His and Hers, Dogman Star, Park Life. Were those just a jumble of words to you, or did you just get really, really excited? Now, pop culture from the UK inundated North America in the 90s in what was dubbed the Second British Invasion, the first, of course, being spearheaded by the Beatles in the 60s and 70s. Both movies today are notable films from the UK, but just might be the most disparate genre-wise as we've done on the podcast to date. But before we get into that, let's set the stage a little. Norm, what exactly was the second British invasion? Why did it happen? What did you love in it? And was stuff just better in the 90s from the UK (laughs) than it was from North America? I mean, yes. Bottom line, yes. Um, (laughs) The... I, I have to be really careful about this because my wife is from the north of England and her family is going to hear this at some point and they're coming for me. I think what happened was the split in culture between the US and the UK in the late 80s after Reagan in the US, after Thatcher in the UK, the resistance movements, the political culture split in two directions. The Americans got tired and the, the Brits got angrier. So you suddenly yeah. had a lot of, I mean, uh, UK cinema was, was, there were no commercial films. It was all small because Thatcher had just slashed funding for everything. You know, they're the Bond movies, but those were really funded by Hollywood studios and made in the UK. But the culture of British cinema was Mike Lee and Ken Loach and small social drama. And, you know, it was great stuff, but it wasn't big. It wasn't ambitious. And none of it was genre which is why the arrival of somebody like Danny Boyle or a screenwriter like Richard Curtis, who was just, they were interested in making commercial movies. They were interested in playing with genres. They were interested in making entertainments. The films are good. They're cinematically sound and the acting is almost across the board, just unimpeachable, but they are fun in a way that English cinema wasn't, or British cinema, I suppose, because Ireland was Neil Jordan in very serious films like, um, uh, I guess Mona Lisa had already sort of started tilting things that way, but it's also very, very serious. It's a gangster picture, but it's heavy going. And then these movies come along and it's the same wave that's emerging from the music. It's the same wave that's emerging from theater. People are glorying in the pleasures of commercial entertainment, pulp, pop, all that stuff. They're just having fun and reminding themselves what fun looks like. And in the U.S., uh, the independent movement is a little bit further behind. Everything's coming out of New York. It's all very small and scrabbly. Uh, Tarantino in 1992 makes Reservoir Dogs or brings Reservoir Dogs to Sundance and that's the game changer. But it takes a couple more years for that yeah. to echo forward and for the other films to come out of it like Pulp Fiction and all of the imitators. In the UK, they're a little bit further along. Britpop is a thing already. And they're smart, witty, uh, melodic. You know, you can you can argue Oasis, Pulp and Blur Uh, as separate elements of the same cultural triangle, I guess, because Oasis is, they're not complicated songs on their lyrics, but they are incredibly musically intricate and they're, they're glorious to listen to. Yes. They all sound like the Beatles, but they're great. The Beatles are great. People forget the reason. (laughs) (laughs) And that's why you love them because they are just, so they get in your head and they stick there and it's fun to sing it. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. Wonderwall is a wedding song now. It's a football song. I don't understand how or why, but it's great. Uh, And then you get, You get pulp and you get blur and they're sort of arguing over who can be more uh, snide and intellectual while also (laughs) releasing bangers. Um, 
the music is so catchy, it makes it everywhere. It gets over here, it gets, it, it, it breaks out, it becomes an identity, and then the music turns up in the movies that come to America, and that's how you get the opening of Shallow Grave, and it's just, it's propulsive joy of, let's mount a camera on a car, drive it really fast, and play something catchy, and within two minutes, it's like, oh, this is a new form of cinema. This is a revolution. And then it just all rolled from there. Mm -hmm. Which then you're also going to be getting into the fact that it was such a small star system to begin with. So once one launched, all of a sudden, anyone else who had picked up on, oh, Oasis is great. Who else do we have that's like them? Launch, 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 launch. And then exactly. everything hits at the same time, right? Because it's just such a small pool to draw from. Um, it's interesting you bring up Richard Curtis, of course, because uh, he also changed pop music as well as changing film because he brought back that horrible, horrible love song that my father played at his second wedding, which was like, Dad, why have you done this? Um, and I think everybody knows that yeah, I love is all around my fingers and it's yeah. just it's the worst it's the worst I mean, and then he, of course he made yeah. fun of it himself he did <laughs> by having um bill nye's character sing yeah. it in love actually or which is you know a whole other kettle of fish which i'm sure we'll eventually yeah. get to on yeah. this podcast but uh let's get into richard curtis for a second because since the 70s richard curtis has been one of the biggest contributors to modern uk comedy to rattle off just a few of his credits thank the incredibly influential sketch comedy show not the nine o'clock news the deeply unsettling satirical puppet show spitting image which still Deeply upsets me. Ubiquitous UK exports, Mr. Bean and Blackadder. And then 1994 saw the release of a movie penned by Curtis that redefined the rom-com and how the rest of the world perceived the UK and its quirks. Now, Four Weddings and a Funeral is a comedy of manners that pokes fun at the stammering doofusness of attending social events and engaging in relationships, featuring an extremely charming supporting cast holding aloft the central romance of Hugh Grant's handsome stammerer and Annie McDowell's sociopathic socialite. Cam, let's talk about a movie that I keep wanting to hate and I can't. <laughs> I just <laughs> like it so yeah. much. Oh, man. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's a classic. Uh, there's no getting around it. Uh, I think it holds up very well, too, surprisingly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, a classic romantic comedy. I guess a quick plot summary, if people don't know. It's essentially following a, a group of friends, uh, some rich, fancy Posh, fancy folks posh. uh yes yes, yes very posh <laughs> and, and like extreme posh uh richard curtis says he doesn't didn't want you to think about what their jobs are <laughs> because he wanted people so rich that you didn't care about what the what what went on in the rest of their lives uh but it's yeah it's as, as it says set around uh, four weddings and a funeral uh led by charles uh who's hugh grant yeah this this group of friends goes to a series of weddings Charles, uh, they're all single, it's worth saying, except for a gay couple, which is kind of, you never really know the extent of their relationship, but they're obviously together. But otherwise, it's a group of kind of hapless singles. And Charles comes across Carrie, uh, played by Andy McDowell, uh, who he immediately just has amazing chemistry with. Uh, but she's American, he's British, uh, they're, they're star-crossed of sorts. And with each wedding, <laughs> their relationship changes, whether it's uh, she eventually is going to get married, uh, but maybe they have affairs. Um, and it's a lot of Charles just sorting out kind of uh, his feelings for people. And uh, But then along the way, you get all these other characters. It's Like you say, it's a very rich supporting cast where everyone kind of has a... Uh, a little plot love actually style i think that's a richard curtis hallmark that he's able to make sure that every little side character has something to do um he is the robert altman of rom-coms sure. yeah, and honestly yeah and i i mean he to hear him talk he yeah he says that like the strength of this film is not the romance or the comedy but it is all the friends and and that it may be the melodrama more than the comedy even so yeah. Um, and yes, obviously somebody dies and it's very sad. <laughs> oh, God. That that funeral scene that I cry. Uh, every yeah, it's one time of the I cry. great funeral I, scenes in yeah. cinema history, uh, I think. I want to get into that a little sure. bit later because I do want to get into the, the relationship between those two characters, which is frankly groundbreaking. While as we look at it now, being a little on the tame side, but we'll sure. talk about that in the 90s. Norm, how do you feel about this one? I kind of land on the same page. I, I think that it might be the best expression of what Richard Curtis does. Mm. And the fact that he continues to do it, or he's sort of been insisting on doing something similar over and over and over ever since, he suggests he knows it yeah. too. Um, it's a it's a lovely movie. And, and I was also among the resistant initially because, well, that's not entirely true. I think 
Richard Curtis's best script is The Tall Guy, which oh, nobody wow. remembers. Miramax released it and basically dumped it because it didn't mm-hmm. seem like a hit for them. This it's is a the comedy. second time we've talked about this. Yeah. Because is Mel, it really? Yeah, because Mel Smith uh, directed uh, Radio Land That's Murders. Right. Yes, we just discussed Radio Land Murders. So Tall Guy Oof. weirdly looms large over 1994. <laughs> well, it's funny, right? The the talent that came out of it or the talent mm-hmm. that came together to make it is, is not insubstantial. Yeah. Um, that's a comedy with Jeff Goldblum and, and Emma, Emma, it is Emma Thompson, yeah, right? Yeah, Emma Thompson, yeah. Of course it is. And like my brain is starting to shout, Bottom Carter! Nope, definitely <laughs> no, not. No, different one. She different could have done it. Maybe she yeah, was up for yeah. it. Um, <laughs> but it's it's a romantic, it's a, it's a parody of romantic comedies mm-hmm. and also somehow Mr. Bean. It's, <laughs> it's Richard Curtis said that he wrote it as, the, as an apology for Mr. Bean to show you how horrible it would be to be the side man who'd be trapped <laughs> yes. in a Mr. Bean show over and over again. And that's the premise. Jeff Goldblum plays the supporting player to... Rowan Atkinson. And he was briefly, I believe, Richard Curtis for like one thing at the Edinburgh Fringe was Rowan Atkinson's side man. So Oh, of course. Yeah, they, all, they developed so charming. the character together. Yeah. And so he he wrote his his like his darkest timeline version of what that would be. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but then it gets taken over by a love story, which is genuinely sweet, genuinely funny, also really spiky and pissy mm-hmm. and and human in a way that a lot of the stuff in Four Weddings and the Funeral is. And that's I think what worked about four weddings is that it presents you with an idealized image of Britain, which is also, you know, it's, it's bollocks to, to mm. borrow a phrase. I think everybody's white, everybody's privileged, everybody's wealthy, nobody cares. There is that, but it's also a version of England that people in England wanted to see projected back to them after Thatcher. Mm-hmm. It's the sense that everything could be okay. If you had the right friends, if you had the right support, if you had a lot of money that you never have to talk about. I mean, they're all, they're all probably serial killers with murder basements. Like they meet every weekend in Yorkshire for a purge. We don't talk about that. Yeah. This is their best selves. But the, the beauty of a romantic comedy is that it's about the best selves. And if you play it properly, you get the audience on board right away because, Oh, I wish I had that life. And Charles is a mess. Yeah. Which is the other thing. They don't back away from the fact that, that he is his own worst enemy. He is yeah. his own biggest obstacle. Yes, it's adorable that he and his his flatmate can't set an alarm clock. Mm-hmm. You know, if you step back, there's a perfectly good reason that Andy McDowell doesn't want to be anywhere near him. Yeah. He's he's a disaster. Ugh. He's very he's a very pleasant disaster and she'd have a good life with him, it's very clear. Which she does. We will talk Which about she, the red we yeah. will talk about the red nose day <laughs> yeah, special yeah. <laughs> where we That's find right. out exactly what happened. My favorite things about four weddings and a funeral, which like immediately I mean I was I was a I probably saw it pretty quickly after it came out. I'm not way too young for it, but uh mm. it's a movie that immediately lost all the signifiers of like Richard Curtis was obsessed with giving Hugh Grant a bad haircut. But then that hair went on to be like iconic Hugh Grant hair. And like, he's supposed to be dressed like a mess and you're like, no, he pulls off all these outfits, everything. And and I even, I posted a thing on my Twitter where it's like, he's wearing what is cooled nowadays of like five inch inseam shorts and a floral shirt. Like, (laughs) but it's meant to be that, that, like, look at this fool. (laughs) uh, It just doesn't work because so charming. I think one of the most brilliant things about this film and about any ensemble comedy is how you are going to introduce this mass of characters, know exactly who they are without being, here's the goth kid, here's this kid. You know what I mean? This is one of the greatest openings of all time where you see exactly where everybody is, who they are, as they get ready for something. You're catching them in this incredible candid moment. You see what a fuck up uh, Charlotte Coleman and Hugh Grant are. Like, fuck, 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 as they're late again. You see uh, how loving the gay couple is played by John Hanna and Simon Callow and like the way they sort of take care of each other. You see all of that, which is just so glorious. And then the best part is they show you exactly who Andy McDowell is because she shows up late in the back and interrupts the wedding. And you're like, bam, I know exactly who this character is going to be. She's the outsider and she's going to fuck everything up and it's going to be great. (laughs) All true. Let's bring us actually into that relationship because I think that's the only major failing point of this movie is why the hell Hugh Grant does not end up with Kristen Scott Thomas. In what universe is this okay? Anyone I have shown this movie to is like, sorry, he picks Duckface over Kristen Scott Thomas? Like, what is going on here? What is going on here, guys? Well, I think the most simple solution or the most simple answer is simply that it's all in Kristen Scott Thomas's performance that she's never told him. You can see over and over again the longing and the quiet and the silent suffering that she's going through because she's a phenomenal actor and she knows exactly who this character is. But he has to be oblivious to it. 
Yeah. And so that just, that's it. It's, it's probably one line of direction on the page early on, you know, who had her chance and missed it or who had his chance and missed it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And they play it without a single indication of spoken word. It's all glances and shrugs and movement and touching. And it's great. And it, again, that's the sort of thing that you put in a movie to communicate this stuff when you have like 10 moving parts in every scene, mm-hmm. it all has to go by really fast. The camera has to catch it and the actors have to play it, but you can do it economically. I mean, this yeah. film was shot for almost no money. Was yeah. It, Three million mm-hmm. pounds or something? Three million yeah. pounds. And it brought in 250 million pounds just in box office. Pounds yeah. just in most, box office. Yeah. Most successful English film at the time, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's the, absolutely wild. The 90s are a, a wild thing where just about every year there's the new most successful English <laughs> film of all time. Uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I also think what you're describing, Norm, is a great reason why it's a very rewatchable film because there's these little moments throughout and just like a line uh, has such good meaning um in the it's it's a series of speeches really this film too so suddenly you know some little thing or little moment or and there's so many characters and the characters are generally very well drawn too so you kind of start enjoying x or y person in the background on your next rewatch and i think there's somebody for everybody to identify with like uh charlotte coleman who plays scarlet Mm. flirts like i flirt (laughs) where she just comes up and says (laughs) everything wrong and then just ends with i think you're very attractive thank you very much and off she goes i always imagine americans are going to be dull as shit i mean of course you're not are you steve martin's american isn't he Yes, he is. You're lovely. And she gets her big Texan, which I do like that she gets uh, she gets what she wants. Everybody sort of ends up with what they want. This is why I'm concerned about Kristen Scott Thomas's character. I'm like, do they really not like her because they pair her off with Prince Charles at the end, presumably? It's just a goofy joke, I think. I don't yeah, I think it. it's just like, it's a reward. She'll be okay. They're, they're not thinking about the tabloid culture that's going to kill her no. in five years. The <laughs> yes. tabloid culture is actually interesting, and I wonder if this is the thing, because this is the one thing that I find a little mean-spirited about the film, is all of the ways they describe women with nicknames which make fun of their physicality there's piggy and there's duck face and it's a very much a british tabloid way of talking about women and i'm like oh it's not quite for me mrs piggy helena was miss piggy so her mother was mrs piggy (laughs) i I, I think perhaps it was a it was a we've both lost a lot of weight since then i mean i think i think something that richard curtis has settled into more later in his career and and it's kind of the great fallacy of all romantic comedies is romantic comedies are you know the the films for women but are predominantly still written and directed by men and i think richard curtis has more and more realized that he is a weirdly a great writer of men in spite of his genre and that's why something like about time is like it, he it's pitched as a rom-com but like it's not secretly it's about fathers and sons <laughs> and, and it's nothing to do with the romance almost uh but yeah i think he and i think he admits it like he, yeah. it, that he was kind of still finding his footing and i actually think that's where Notting hill he draws a much more interesting and nuanced woman character and kind of the men are these ridiculous nonsense people uh but yeah i think here there's a little something missing but i, I do like that Kristen scott thomas stuff i don't know it's it works for me and i also think that you know a, a friend i don't know if you've ever had some a friend approach you who likes you but if you've put someone not to not friend zone but if somebody has been slotted in your mind as a friend it really it takes something to change that and them just saying that they like you doesn't change that, unfortunately. It is yeah. what it is. Yeah, when it lands, it's actually a great trap. I mean, obviously, she does tell him at one yeah. point, but uh, it's just, it's played really, really well. And it's probably the toughest scene, even more so than the funeral speech yeah. in the movie, because if you mistime it or you get one thing wrong, it's going to die. Yeah. And it, it, it works. There's a, there's a grace to it and, a, and a, an understanding in mm. Grant's performance that plays really well. Yeah, I mean, they both won their BAFTA awards for it, so mm. <laughs> well-deserved. There's something, too, about Richard Curtis that you bring up uh, about the fact that he not only changed the idea of the rom-com, but he changed the idea of what people actively think is romantic. 
Um, mm. Like the idea of learning a language for something for someone is something that has come up repeatedly. Uh, one of the um, one of the people learns uh, English uh, sign language or British sign mm. language, I believe it is BSL mm. um, for another character in this. And then you have the same thing happening in Love Actually, where she, he learns Portuguese and she learns mm. English. And and I think it happens in another one too. And there's a lot of people who are like, yeah, yeah, that's romantic. You do this, and it's uh, it's interesting that maybe he even changed the idea of what we think is sexy. Sure. Well, it's I the mean, grand gesture, right? Like yeah. every romantic comedy ends with a grand gesture. The ones that the, the, the language thing is great, though, because all the work can happen off camera. You don't mm -hmm. ever have to show it. It's just a big surprise. It's not like I bought you that flower you liked. I remembered. It's the <laughs> this actor can now do this. Yeah. And the audience believes it completely. I mean, obviously, it's like for the Portuguese scene, it's a couple of lines phonetically memorized that day. <laughs> it's not that that actor actually went and learned the language. Yeah. But it lands in the moment because our expectation is that we want it to work, right? And like we're rooting for the characters. There's no, there's no romantic, there are very, there's probably one or two. There are very few romantic comedies where you don't want people to get together. Mm -hmm. So you're already on board, you're already plugged in. And that's why happy endings work so well. It gives there, you what you want. There's so many romantic comedies that I love that are my favorite is where they don't end up together. <laughs> where they realize yeah. that this is not what they want and they are actually better people for not being together. But, you know, that's just me. Got a little bit of bitterness going on. Um, <laughs> so you're rooting for the Baxter is what you're saying. Yeah, I am. Yeah. I am indeed. And um, I guess Chris and Scott Thomas is the Baxter. <laughs> there's always one. Yes, yes. We should actually talk about Andy McDowell. Uh, like in our next movie, this is not someone who now we would think was the get. Um, mm. But Andy McDowell was like the megastar that they were like, we got Andy McDowell. And she agreed to do this for points on the back end. She waved her fee for points at the back end and walked away with $2 million at the end of it, which is yeah, just absolutely wild to Hugh Grant's $100,000. Um, seeing who else was meant to be cast here, like Jean Triplehorn was going to be doing it and then sure. her father got ill, which is like, again, that's another star that we don't think of as a star now. Though very, if you were like Gene Triplehorn and Andy McDowell are in the same slot in my yeah. mind. I'm like, yeah, of course. <laughs> that makes she, could have, she could easily have done it. For yeah. me, I, the missed, she would have been yeah, fine. Yeah, the missed opportunity is Marissa Tomei because what a different mm. American than the Southern Belle sure. Peach. You get this like New York kind of <laughs> angry yeah. woman. I think that would be a really interesting take on the character. Sure. <laughs> but also Sarah Jessica Parker was in contention apparently and that's mm. a terrible idea. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. She no, would more... not, that would not have worked. She would have, no. have, have been so... Uh, inappropriately cast alongside all and of these characters. And she has an awful yeah. uh, two Grant movie in the future too. Aren't they like running from the mob or something? Oh, God. <laughs> I think yeah. so. Yeah, yeah it's, it's not good. It's well, a much forgotten. <laughs> did you hear about the Morgans? Is that it? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Maybe that's it. We yeah. talked about this a little bit when we talked about Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is the casting of Americans in British film and especially that's been written by someone who is from the UK and their ability to kind of handle that sort of mm. language and that sort of timing. And there's an interesting example of that. I think uh, Anna McDowell handles it fairly well in the movie um, but there's these two trailers that were not released which is really unfortunate and they're on YouTube and they're really charming where um, they have like 30 seconds to kind of explain it and um, the first one is just uh, Hugh Grant just going a mile a minute talking about how great Annie McDowell is and gives her like you know two seconds to be like well it's a movie about and then it cuts yeah. and Hugh Grant it's written by Curtis and Hugh Grant just delivers it beautifully and then they have another one which is the reverse where Annie McDowell keeps forgetting Hugh Grant's name and keeps you know it's, it's just being a jerk but you can tell it's written like she doesn't handle the rat-a-tat quite in the same way uh, and yeah. it's it's always interesting to me when you see these American actors in these British films and how they're able to handle it like I remember seeing Janine Garofalo on Nevermind the Buzzcocks and her actually trying to trying to win the game mm -hmm. as opposed to just being a doofus what do you do you guys have an opinion about that how does that feel for you i mean well, i think mcdowell is in a safe place here because she's playing an american who is out of place like she's the mm -hmm. interloper in the entire narrative so she can get away with a couple of tweaks here and there to whatever's going on or she can make it fit her timing and her persona but the other thing that always fascinated me about andy mcdowell is that only a handful of film she was in a lot of movies in the late 80s and early 90s and only a handful of filmmakers knew how to use her yeah, yeah. Or, which was to let her be her Mm -hmm. um, Soderbergh wrote about making sex lies and videotape and realizing that once he saw her in the opening monologue, she blushes on cue, which is physically impossible. You're not <laughs> supposed to be able to make yourself do that, but she could, she could do it. And he just decided to let her do whatever the hell she wanted because clearly she was better than he thought she was at everything. And Newell lets her be awkward and frames the group. I'm sorry, Mike Newell, who we haven't really yeah. talked about the yeah. director. No. Yeah 
he lets her be awkward and frames her against the group over and over and over again to make her the outsider and push her slightly away from them physically. She's close to, uh, she comes close to Charles. She occupies the same space with Hugh Grant a lot, but otherwise she's at the corner of the frame. She's at the sides. She's, she's coming into scenes and going out of scenes. And it's really, it's incredibly supportive of her performance because it makes her awkwardness feel natural and organic to us. Like she doesn't know what to do in front of the screen, in front of the can- the audience. And it's not that she's a self-conscious actor exactly, but she does have this self-aware thing that a lot of movies didn't know how to use. Um, I still don't know why Robert Town cast her in Greystoke, the Tarzan movie, where she ended up being <laughs> dubbed by Glenn Close. Yeah. She did not belong in that film. She's got, she has a Southern accent and yeah. she's very contemporary. It's just, it was a dumb idea. She made the best of it. But here and in... Uh, especially in Sex, Lies, and Videotape, but also in Four Weddings, you get it. You understand why people wanted her to be a movie star. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until um, years later that other directors understood how she could work for them. And she kind of had to age out of stuff like green card and yeah. uh, romantic leading roles and become a supporting player. And she's she's amazing. She's an incredible character actor. It's just that they tried to package her as a movie star. Yeah. Yeah, I also think that there's... I think you're right that Newell is is kind of the the clincher here, and it's interesting when you read Richard Curtis because this is so chalked up as a Richard Curtis movie. He mm-hmm. he credits Newell a lot in this functioning well. He's like, you like those supporting characters because of Mike Newell, oh, um, as he should do. Yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah. Also, he was coming like Mike Newell isn't known for his comedies, which I find no. absolutely amazing. Uh, yeah. He made things like Dance with a Stranger and. Um, what was the other one he was really uh, he was incredibly well known for in the in eighties? Oh, uh, a- Enchanted April. Enchanted was April, right, right before this, which was massive in in America for some reason. Yeah, well, um, it was that Mir- it was Miramax, right? That was packaged yes. really well. Yes. and Into the West, a film he made right after Enchanted yeah, April, yeah. is this great lost sort of British western that nobody. It's not even a western; it's more of a fantasy, but it's great, and nobody saw it because again, Miramax they just killed it. Uh, but yeah. he would go on to make like. Donnie Brasco and Pushing Tin and High Fidelity. Like he directed High Fidelity and Harry Potter 4, I yes. think. Goblet of Fire. Uh, Goblet of Fire. Uh, yeah. There's a good... Uh, Richard Curtis liked... P- picked Mike Newell specifically because he adapted this comedic play for TV in the late 80s. Okay. And I kind of want to find it because it seems like it's a very like noises off. It's set on a film set and it's about an old man who kind of bumbles around. Uh, and it's kind of fascinating to know that, yeah, like Richard Curtis kept in his mind where he's like this this respected director made one like really great timing comedy movie once in the 80s. And I know that he'll be able to do it. I can um, see that as, as something, especially in the UK television industry, where it was it was pretty small and the writer and producer had much more power than the director. Totally. So if you're moving into features and you're still uncertain, like I, Mel Smith was the right guy for the tall guy because he's mm-hmm. got the ability to to sell the most ridiculous slapstick aspects of it. But here, I think Curtis knew he had a he had to have a a, a, a lighter, firmer touch at the same time. Totally. I, and just to say, it's called "Ready When You Are, Mr. McGill" from 1976. Who started <laughs> it? Who's the Who's the lead? Uh, it is a guy named Joe Black. Uh, but there's like Joe, yeah, I don't know. It's 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 a that. bunch of people I'd never heard of, but it, it is well known enough that they actually remade it uh, recently in like 2013 or something. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's kind of one of those play for today sort of TV movies. And uh, yeah, it apparently struck a chord with Richard Curtis enough that when they were developing this, he's like, you know who's secretly great at comedy? Mike Newell. <laughs> <laughs> well, this Good was also him. nominated for an Academy Award too. And that's Mike Newell's like only real brush with the Academy Awards. What's wild about it is we have just been mostly talking about the writing and talking about the character actor performances. This is mm. one of 12 movies that has been nominated for Best Picture and in none of the acting categories, which is just mm. bananas to me. Um, the other, The other one that really struck me when I looked at what the other 12 were American in Paris American in Paris was nominated for best picture and not for any of the acting categories is dancing acting back Uh, you are so dead to me (laughs) (laughs) they nominated Kelly for director it's fine okay right like 
Well, one of the things, because of course it is so rare for comedies to get slotted into that category, and I think because this does have genuine touching moments and moments about representation that weren't really in the 90s that we didn't get to see, number one is there is a deaf character who is also played by a deaf actor, played by played by David Bauer. Um, and it's interesting, I've read articles previously online of people who are deaf or come from deaf families um, writing about it, and something this broke out that a lot of people didn't understand was that there is British Sign Language, there is American Sign Language, Language, there is a different sign language for basically everywhere. So you still had to read the subtitles, even if you spoke American Sign Language, which wow. is really interesting to me. Do you guys find the representation here um, is fair? Like he kind of does show up and save the day, even though he gets his own plot line of romance. Yeah. yeah if he didn't, so if he didn't actually figure in the climax, it would just be, it could just be perceived as a gimmick. Mm. The same way that Gareth and Matthew, like their gayness is not an issue. Their, their sexuality is not, uh, a factor in the mm -hmm. plot, except that, you know, that lets, except that the climax lets, not the climax, except that the funeral lets Matthew have the, the most heartrending scene. Mm -hmm. um, but their sexuality, like, that could be any couple who is separated yeah. by death. It doesn't have to be that they're gay. Yeah. It's great that they are because, again, there wasn't a lot of that in 1994 uh, at all on, uh, on American screens. Certainly there were no gay relationships portrayed in that level of texture and depth unless it was an AIDS drama which is mm -hmm. like an awful thing to say but that was what was marketable and, yeah. and you know what it's actually very interesting because this is a big uh, step up for one of the biggest gay producers Duncan Kentworthy as mm -hmm. well and he uh, wanted the funeral to be a gay couple because he said essentially he wanted to have the feelings that he was going through with all these in his own life uh, funerals of people dying from AIDS, Ugh. but removing the AIDS factor and essentially just showing the the relationship, which is interesting. And it's always interesting to me when a producer, like a heavy producer note <laughs> actually is good in the script and ends yeah. up being like a wonderful part of the script. Uh, and it really launched his career, obviously, because he ended up being a guy who made a ton of money on his the movie. Yeah. <laughs> Well, there's some stuff in here, too, that I think is very 90s indicative of this sort of relationship. I mean, number one, it is the gay couple that dies. And usually that's lesbians. But, you know, sure. you're, see you're seeing this as well. But I think it's very indicative that they aren't ever really physically intimate with each other. You see all the rest yeah. of the characters, like, kiss each other and be intimate. And here, like, they'll touch each other on the cheek or they'll be like a hand or they'll hug. But you don't really get to see any of that. Same thing, of course, happening in movies like Philadelphia. You just don't get to see that on screen. Um, mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. the other thing that I think that really hit me as extremely poignant is when... Um, at the funeral, the um, priest refers to him as his closest friend, as sure. opposed to, you know, his partner. And it's, ugh, sorry, I'm crying just thinking about <laughs> it. Um, but then John Hanna's beautiful, beautiful delivery of that W.H. Auden poem, which could be in any other hand, I think, very corny. Here, it's just like, ow, ow, it hurts. Ugh, yeah. God, I love it so much. It's so good. He was my north, my south, my east and west. My working week. My Sunday rest, my noon, my midnight, my talk, my song. I thought that love would last forever. I was wrong. And like Hugh Grant and Chris and Scott Thomas, that really launched John Hanna to have yeah. a, a huge career. I mean, yeah, it's kind of weird because you think of that this is just launching so many careers and these people were around obviously but uh they're not like it <laughs> these are like the leads of bitter moon this is not uh not not the main comedic people especially uh it, when you think of british that was more of the kind of footlights the fry and laurie emma thompson group at the time so it's mm -hmm. all these new people being launched into who knows? Yeah. Just before we move to the second one, Cam, do you want to talk about the Red Nose Day sequel for a second, which you sure, sent to me, which is cute. charming. It's charming. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I like it. And you know what? I think especially going back and, and, and learning and reading about the Duncan Kentworthy influence, the Red Nose Day is so canny because it specifically is dealing with the difference between 1994 and whenever it was 2018 or something is gay marriage. So they do a great job of making the funny Rowan Atkinson bit that he does not know how to deal with doing a gay marriage ceremony. And, and it has all the cute kind of nods while 
still having obviously i mean there's there's very sad things like charlotte coleman is dead um and kind of acknowledging some of that but also you know being a little nicer where it's like hey john hannah has a partner and it's it's a handsome celebrity uh sam smith shows up with nicola walker did you sing the bad song some of it is red nose day style cringe uh they never fully nail those but yeah it's pretty charming it's also uh, from what i saw the last thing mike newell uh, has recently directed which is something <laughs> which is i don't know but yeah it's it's charming and i suggest people look it up i, I think a lot of people don't know it exists because red nose day just doesn't really connect in uh, north america um but yeah they've they've got just about everybody and it and it's cute fantastic yeah, it's, it's pleasant but yeah. I, i'm i'm still I'm glad they never made the sequel. I'm glad they yes. never actually did the thing they th- they were threatening, which was five weddings or something. There was actually talk of it uh, around 98 or 99. And Thank God. it never happened. No. And yeah, it shouldn't have. No. Because no, sequels yeah. to romantic comedies are a terrible idea. <laughs> exactly. almost, almost every time. We have what we wanted. There's a reason the, yeah. films, the story ends where it does. You Just don't want to shake sit. up <laughs> what you, like at the end of a romantic comedy, that's where we want it to be. Nobody wants that to be... Uh, rended apart yeah yeah uh, i think that's that uh, rending apart is actually exactly where we need to end this segment because that'll take us very beautifully into our next movie uh so our next movie also accelerated the careers of a doctor who a jedi master and a high profile director with a very eclectic resume it's shallow grave of course coming up after the break Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 1994, as we said, was the year that Pulp Fiction was released and was one of the biggest hits of the year. So every movie out that year and the next that even remotely had questionable language and graphic violence needed a poster blurb that referenced how similar it was to Pulp Fiction, including, of course, Shallow Grave, which stated, if you liked Pulp Fiction, have I got a movie for you. If you must compare this to a Tarantino movie, and you do not, but it is much (laughs) closer to Reservoir Dogs thematically, as well as in the bleakness of the violence in the final act. Now, don't get me wrong. This is no imitator and holds up extremely well in its own right as a fantastic debut feature for Danny Boyle, directing Ewan McGregor in his first feature lead and an up-and-coming Christopher Eccleston. It also serves as a solid reminder of the perils of toasting to happiness and love forever. Do not do that, you fools. Let's talk Shallow Grave. Norm, what's this one about? Well, it's about friendship. (laughs) (laughs) And the perils thereof. (laughs) Yeah. Ultimately, what it's about is how you make uh, a directorial debut that people notice when you don't have a great deal of money. Um, But the the plot is your basic Hitchcockian paranoia betrayal setup. And it's, it's perfect. It's airtight. Three people in their 20s who are all reasonably stylish and attractive you know basically it's what if friends but murder yeah (laughs) um so you have uh, ewan mcgregor christopher eccleston and carrie fox as roommates flatmates in edinburgh who are perfectly nice and kind of pissy uh they're 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 you know they're idealized british people they're sociopathic monsters well they are but none the the genius of it is that none of them has told the other yes Mm -hmm. like every single one of them thinks they're just great pals and the thing that breaks them up and the thing that turns them against each other and the thing that makes the movie so much fun is that they need a fourth so they need a flatmate they eventually take in 
after after a great montage where they are absolutely awful to people and tell us everything about who these characters are in a really nice, economic, entertaining way, uh, they take in a shifty guy played by Keith Allen who uh, almost immediately dies, <laughs> uh, leaving behind a very large suitcase of money. So they decide that the smartest thing to do would be to get rid of the body, keep the money, not tell anyone they ever had a flatmate, and just let it roll. <laughs> and of course, that doesn't go well. <laughs> this is my thing. Like, I, I refuse to disclose anything that happens after the first no, reel in the movie. And who, why would you want to spoil this yeah, for people? This one is, it is so beautiful. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's very spoilable. Go watch it if you have not seen it yet. I, I hadn't seen this one before. And man, I'm glad I've seen it now. It is a little shotgun blast of a film. What a treat. Yeah, it holds up to, I mean, it's uh, just the idea that it's almost 30 years old is mind boggling to me, but those people are so young and pretty. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and Ewan McGregor looks fantastic in a dress, which we all knew he would, so that's fantastic. Um, I mean, how do you even start to talk about this one? Like, it's Danny Boyle wanted to move into into film. He was coming from theater, and so the way he sort of directed it, which um, we talked about before, The Devil Knows You're Dead, and the way, uh, how amazing oh, yeah. that film is, which this is very comparable to that in terms of feel, I think think um deep bleak stuff if this if that's not your thing you know this might not be as well but still very funny um the way uh, that Sidney Lumet um directed that one was they ran the whole thing like a play over and over again so they knew exactly where the highs and the lows were going to be they did something similar with this where they lived together in a house for 10 days they watched movies together they ate together they hung out so that they would have that sort of like bond together um and then they shot the film from there and so anyone who was coming in from the outside did feel like an outsider for them which is I mean one of the most brilliant things you can do if you have the budget and the time and people who are not like running from one film to another like I, I was gonna say it's also it's what you do when you ha don't have the budget yeah because uh doesn't cost much to do rehearsals uh, so <laughs> you uh, you kind of make sure that every take is a first take um yeah that's I think a, a good way to but yeah it's it's a very interesting and I think it pays off they see they have very weird deep relationships like we said uh, in the other film especially the kind of odd tension between carrie fox and ewan mcgregor i think is is very well played out but yeah it's it's kind of a fascinating thing and, and it's an interesting time like you say one thing i just kind of apropos of nothing to talk about 1994 is that uh john hodge is a scottish writer and it was this big crazy boom in scottish culture i think like norm was saying with the end of the thatcher era i think both ireland and scotland kind of looked at themselves and went like uh, we're not england <laughs> and, yeah uh, oh absolutely you saw this huge uh, explosion uh it was and this movie is a big part of the film obviously scene going on with train spotting and and so on and, and really ending up the scottish film boom kind of happens towards the end of the 90s early 2000s but at the same time you have stuff like Irvin welsh and uh, james kelman and al kennedy being kind of the first big scottish novelist to hit uh, james kelman's the first booker prize winner from scotland uh, and then also weirdly at the same time uh artists from glasgow start winning the turner prize and end up dominating that for a long time so it's also just this as much as this is a British filmmaker uh, and a British funded film, it's just a part of this weird movement where of Scotland kind of being like, we are our own thing. Um, yeah. Well, and Boyle's from the North too. So he mm -hmm. wasn't really part of the, the emergence in London of, yeah. of that specific British film culture. And I think that gave him the outsider perspective for both English culture and Scotland that, that makes him such a great fit for this. And of course he and, and Welsh have their own intersection coming up in a couple of years with train spotting. This yeah. is of course, like as I was watching, I was like, holy shit, this is such a run up for train spotting. Like it's, mm -hmm. it's just everything about it is like, you see the wheels turning. We talked about, I want to hold your hand. Um, and that being like a massive run up both for uh, Forrest Gump and for back to the future. This, you mm -hmm. see all of the moving parts of what train spotting is going to become, which is just amazing. Uh, I also love that because they took this to Sundance and then they presented the train spotting script to Ewan McGregor and said, we are not offering these to you but what do you think <laughs> which yeah. is like yeah as if anyone else could have played that but you and mcgregor right yeah. yeah it's um it's a kinetic cinema that uh like boyle didn't invent it but he perfected it yeah. i think the the propulsive use of music and the way that um the way that's well i mean the fact that shallow grave is a very static film when you think about it it's a lot of people sitting in rooms staring mm. at each other like ultimately that is i'm gonna guess 40 percent of the movie is just tension yeah but by starting it with that careering shot through the through the streets of the city uh, with with the pounding soundtrack, 
you're um, you're in third gear before the credits finish. And so you just keep hurtling forward on that momentum. And Boyle, more than almost anybody else, understands momentum in a narrative uh, so, so that you can feel like your heart rate's a little elevated even during an exp- uh, a simple expository scene and just keep looking for the next hit. Like it's, it's a dopamine factory that just never really stops like a perpetual motion machine. And I think the only other filmmaker who gets it on the same level is probably Edgar Wright, who mm. souped it up for and supercharged it for um, for stuff like Shaun of the Dead ten years mm. later. I'm there yeah. with you, yeah. And I think about um, I, I don't know if you've ever seen Edgar uh, Edgar Wright's um, music video for Mint Royale's uh, mm-hmm. thing with, yeah. with yeah with that. And I can't help but think about the two, right? Like you got the heist going on, you got all the buddies. There's the music playing in the car. It's I mean that was the run up for Baby Driver, right? So yeah. so yeah, it's you just see this kind of thing. And there's a youthfulness to these movies that wasn't in British cinema before this point, right? Like you're watching young people behave badly, which you don't really get that much of. It's normally older posh people behaving badly. Yeah, well, it's sort of an echo of the. 60s and 70s little Lindsay Anderson films like uh, like If and O Lucky Man where yes. and Clockwork Orange of course right yeah. which is the other great example of yeah uh, anything of, that stopped anything that started Malcolm youth. McDowell yeah yeah youth <laughs> but it's like the youth danger cinema thing that's not yeah. happening here yeah they're not they're not a menace to anyone but themselves <laughs> mm. yeah it's a bit of the like I, I think it kind of works as a there wasn't as much of like a Gen X movement in in British cinema, but this one kind of works as it because it's sort of the like nightmare nihilist. Like when you don't care about anything, what happens? <laughs> I think something yeah. Danny Boyle does that very very few filmmakers can do, and he does it in um, Train Spotting as well, is to make these deeply unlikable characters likable, and that sure. is so hard to do because you want to spend time with them, and when they start turning on each other, spoiler alert, um, you're you it's hard to pick whose side you actually want to be on and who is worse than who um and but you still love all of them and the very end actually feels like a triumph you're like yes the right person won for some reason (laughs) yeah well it's because he's the um how can i put this uh he's the prettiest is that what you're gonna say no it's because he's the cleverest yes Mm -hmm. right like it's 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 a it's a a heist plot ultimately where the where the money never leaves the room yeah. which is like the money never leaves the building which i think is kind of fantastic mm-hmm. there it will ultimately but not for a while and someone's <laughs> going to have to go to the hospital yeah. first but every single character is punished for their desire yes. it's just that the one who suffers the most well that's not really true cuz somebody dies but <laughs> it's the one who had the best plan which involved his own suffering is ultimately rewarded I did an episode of someone else's movie about this movie in the before times in December 2019 uh, with Christy Wilson Cairns, who wrote 1917 mm-hmm. and has written the new Edgar Wright film, Last Night yeah. in Soho, which I'm dying to see. Oh, yeah. And she picked Shallow Grave and she was just so excited to imagine where they ended up <sighs> and where things go. And she has an entire concept for... Uh, for Juliet, for Carrie Fox's character, who has gone back to Australia and reinvented herself as a doctor, and we catch up with her 20 years later because someone figured something out. And it's like, I would fucking watch that. Oh, I would yeah. pay so to watch. <laughs> I would pay to make that. Yeah. <laughs> well, we should actually talk about Carrie Fox because Carrie Fox was the get here. Like, we talked to you, yep. McGregor, we talked to Christopher Eccleston. Where was Carrie Fox at this point? She was coming off a run of incredibly critically acclaimed, although underseen, mm-hmm. uh, film in Australia and I think also New Zealand. She was yeah. working with Jane Campion and she was working with um, uh, Gillian Armstrong. She's in a tremendously good movie called The Last Days of Shea New, which absolutely nobody has seen. But I think it was like the year before. And it's it's just about a, a family coming apart uh, thanks to a new member. And it's not a thriller or anything. It's just a it's just a domestic drama, but it's great. One of the one of the best films of that decade, and nobody saw it because it was mm. bought by New Line and then just wow. shelved because it wasn't it didn't look like an awards contender. It was right when everybody was competing about Oscars rather than money yeah. because there was no money in independent <laughs> cinema yet until Pulp Fiction. Um, and so she ends up in this, and she's the interloper. Uh, I I want to say she showed up later in the in the rehearsal period yeah, if I'm I remembering so, that correctly because yeah. she might have actually been working. Yeah, uh, but. But Boyle, like again, subtly did that to pit her against Eccleston and and McGregor initially, and then they figured out their dynamic. And the other thing that um, the other thing that Christie is convinced of, and she's probably right, is that the subtext of the film is that all three of them have slept with each other. Oh yeah, yeah no question, oh, totally. no question. Like a, bunch, a bunch of times and gotten yeah. tired with it. Yes. Yeah. And so yeah. all the betrayals and all the paranoia and all the suspicion 
comes from a place of personal hurt yeah. as opposed to just greed, which I think mm-hmm. is really very telling. Also, their jobs are ingenious. There's oh, a yeah. doctor, there's a journalist, and there's an accountant. They're all exactly who you would need if you found a big bag of money and needed to hide <laughs> it and a body. And yes. and because of that, their strengths also become weaknesses and vulnerabilities. And yeah, uh, the only person who is the natural storyteller is the one who writes an ending where he wins. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I mean, this is as close to perfect a film as I think you can get for this kind of budget. Like everything makes sense. The build makes mm-hmm. sense. You care about these characters. And even when the extreme violence happens at the end, um, they are so smart because they didn't want to America Americafy it. Uh, they don't use guns. It's yeah, knives, no guns. which makes it even more personal and more intimate and way harder to watch on screen. <laughs> it's really devastating. And the, the turn, too, that you're watching someone tell a story who is not actually with you anymore is fascinating as well. Yeah, just so, such weird things that would then become Danny Boyle's sort of hallmarks where it's like, yeah, the, the narrator is unreliable and not actually who you think they are. And there's a bunch more stuff going on. It's just so wild to me that this stuff starts so early. Well, it also lines it up with noir, right? Like it reaches back at Sunset Boulevard and and, and maybe even Double Indemnity. And it, it's touching on the history, not just of Hitchcock. Like you could, you saw a lot of people make Hitchcock movies, quote unquote, in the 90s, which was basically just long takes and dark lighting because yeah. they didn't understand that the scripts and the, the characters are the reason people remember those movies. Uh, Hodge studied them and, and understands them from the inside out. He... Uh, he's trained as a doctor, and somehow that gave him an almost uh, clinical ability to dissect the original texts and figure out sure. what worked and what didn't, and he just ported it all over. The films that, yeah, I mean, even even The Beach, which everyone sort of, well, no, not, I was going to say the films they made together are all great, but then you also have A Life Less Ordinary, which yeah. is just a <laughs> god-awful <laughs> mess. Listen, um, I don't know if the guy defending the tall guy can totally hate uh, but the, the tall guy ordinary. knew what it wanted to be and did it. Uh, life Less Ordinary is we have some money in America. Yes. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. And, and I, I've talked to Boyle about it a couple of times. Like I've interviewed him, I don't know, half a dozen times over the years. And he'll talk about anything. And he yeah. said that Lifeless Ordinary was just an experiment that didn't work. And he can just throw it away like that. I do feel like it's, like it's laudably odd, like for yeah. him. Ameri- like it, it was a swing. And I respect yeah. that he took a swing, you know? Well, he said it was his version. They, they saw it as their version of Raising Arizona, okay. which actually makes it uh, make sense in the rear view. It doesn't work, but it's yeah. like, oh, I see. You just, that's what you wanted. You just didn't get there. Mm-hmm. And to the point where, like, even casting Holly Hunter suddenly makes sense. Yeah, yeah, but, sure. oh, yeah, no, that's a mess. And and Shallow Grave and, and Train Spotting, there's there's no fat on them. There's nothing no. wrong. There's oh, yeah. they don't step wrong ever. No. So watching the three of them, Andrew McDonald and um, and Hodge and Boyle, just hit a wall Im- almost immediately with their first studio yeah. picture was incredibly depressing. Yeah, and I mean, I think it it made him who he is because now he talks about you know like he never goes over a certain budget because he you know it keeps you lean and crazy and i do i think you're you're totally right also to point out that it's like it's interesting that you were like okay yeah this is danny boyle but the first chunk of his career is like this is specifically all of these people together including like masahiro hirakubo his editor and stuff like it's all these all these people who he just kept together and weirdly changed a bit together and but yeah and and whenever they come together again you're like oh yeah <laughs> the good spice <laughs> yeah yeah but without danny boyle and this film you also don't get stuff like Lockstock. like this launched a very specific oh, totally. type of british film where people are like i want to see slang that i do not understand i want to see a lot of violence <laughs> and i want to see people who mumble like just bring that mean, to me and i'll be happy just cinematic films a lot of people uh reading a lot of those british articles about uh, shallow grave is just saying because if you watch the 80s stuff the big the you know the bill forsyth things and stuff like that short of neil jordan short of uh uh like i mean short of i it's not that the films of like merchant ivory don't look beautiful uh and cinematic but they don't have this feel this is a very weirdly to say european feel for a british movie but uh, there's something to it and it has the mtv feel that was you know he's kind of ahead on that yeah, Merchant Ivory was never going to do anything with quick cutting. It's no. just not how they work, right? But <laughs> no. those films are very much about a certain life that isn't possible anymore. Mm-hmm. And these movies are all about potential in the future. Mm-hmm. And I don't I don't like the Guy Ritchie movies because, again, like I think he learned the wrong lessons or he took away the wrong lessons from, from Boyle's films, which is, you know, like if you play a lot of music and you keep the camera moving, it doesn't really matter what happens as long as there's some motion. It's like, well, you need to care. And... 
his movies are I, I know people love them but i have just never connected to them I, I, but I, I think that's the difference between the two right like danny boyle creates characters who are horrible human beings that you can't you you can't help but empathize with and, but you don't like any of the characters in guy Ritchie movies because they're all awful like it's a different mm-hmm. it's a different way of looking at morality right understanding why people are doing the things they do and you're like i would do the same thing in the same situation if i had that kind of thing right sure yeah i mean Boyle's films allow you to experience empathy uh, <laughs> on some level. But with like the other thing too is that it's like Richie watched the first 10 minutes of Shallow Grave and oh, insulting, I can do that. And that's all his characters ever do. They just shout insults at each other. Sometimes they're racist, sometimes they're homophobic, but they're always insults. And it's like, you know, it gets tiring after a while. You need them to. Yeah, but you're also not understanding stuff. what they're trying to do with that insult. Like, it's like, no, 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 they're setting you up to show what these people are capable of later. If exactly. they can do these yeah. tiny atrocities, wait till you see what they can actually, what they're actually capable of when the big, bad, <laughs> ga- big bad gangsters show up who you have seen, like, st- throttle people in the middle of, like, they're stick them in freezers. Like, the torture is horrible. And these mm-hmm. guys are worse, which is just so impressive. Yeah. Well, this film also obeys what I call the Peter Mullen rule, which is that when Peter Mullen shows up in a movie, things are not going to get better for people. Um, It is an unbreakable rule, you'll find. It it has proven itself out for 35 years. Uh, And he's it's just a tiny little appearance. And it's just like, oh, okay, shit gets real now. Gotcha. Danny Boyle, I also think, is the best purveyor of covert horror movies. Like you go mm. into something and you're like, oh, this is, I think this is going to be one thing. And then it turns into a horror movie or it turns into a different kind of horror movie than you thought it was going to be like, for example, 28 Days Later, right? Um, this one here, I was talking to my mother-in-law about it and she was, uh, she's like, oh, he did that train spotting. That's the scariest movie I've ever seen in my life. And I was like, sorry, that's the scariest movie? Like, what have you been watching? And then she talked about, she's like, what happens with the baby is the most horrifying thing I think I've ever seen. And I was like... It is a horror movie. You're right. <laughs> Begbie is one of the worst villains of all time. Like, you are totally correct. And this kind of falls into that, where you think you're watching this, like, fun sort of thing, and it's actually a horror movie, which it turns into at the very end. That's oh, fascinating totally. to me. I also like that this has... The, the One thing that kind of sticks out, knowing Boyle's future, uh, I think it's partially budgetary, is this has the kind of strange uh, score by Simon Boswell, which mm. is very, like... He did the score for, like, Demons 2. It's a very <laughs> Italian horror movie score which i enjoy but yeah that's when you when you start hearing more and more of that you're like oh, okay i get what i'm in for <laughs> yeah. i guess the thing that's that the other thing that really works uh and it's a it's a result of the budget and it's it's a result of the script being tooled to accommodate the things that they could do rather than the stuff that they wanted to do is that the the smothering suffocating feeling of it is mm. something that you can only accomplish when you can't leave yeah. right like it, the the story gets outside the camera does leave the the flat but the sense that everyone is trapped with a secret that it only that can only be spoken about inside those walls it's ingenious totally. it's uh, and it's another hitchcock film it's rope yeah yeah where, yeah yeah where there's a body in a trunk and for the entire film and the camera never leaves the apartment because it's being shot like the film play that it is and it's a sense of simple storytelling that speaks to as you mentioned the play for today like decades Mm. of british television and audiences were primed to get what was going on in the uk in a way that they weren't here it plays like a surprise in north america because no one had seen a movie like this in a while but there it's the air they breathe (laughs) and culturally i think that's the other reason it surged in the way that it did in the uk because it went to Cannes, and the french loved it and that was great but then when it opened in this in in england when it opened in britain they suddenly the audience saw it. They saw themselves reflected in it. They saw the childhood of watching these things that were never as interesting as they could be. Mm. And they saw this new wave of it. And that's the explosion point. It's the same way that Pulp Fiction um, realizes all the potential of Reservoir Dogs. Like, I think Reservoir Dogs is the better film. I Agreed. think it's a, perf- it's a perfect movie. It's a locked box. It uses time beautifully. Every character is is perfectly realized. Pulp Fiction is great, but it's flabby. It has to be because of the structure. And it's not a flaw. It it works. But Reservoir Dogs does everything Pulp Fiction does, and it does it, you know, with, a, with like 50 minutes to spare. <laughs> and you come out of it thinking, oh, I have seen the future. And Shallow Grave was that in the UK in a way that no other movie was. And of course, of course, it would be ripped off and mimed and memed and pulled into other 
uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It would be reconfigured and, and reimagined and, and ripped off forever to the point where I'm sure there's going to be a remake any day now with a new wave of younger, oh, yeah. like Robert Pattinson's probably a little <laughs> too old now, but he would have been great as Alex. Um, Harry there is Styles. a way to there is a way to remake this, right? Yeah, Harry Styles could probably he just get the great cast. address <laughs> and Finn White like bring bring some people back from Dunkirk. Why not? <laughs> yeah. Um, who'd the girl be? Who would play? Who's a, who's our New Zealand hot star yeah. of the day? Huh. I don't know. Oh um, no 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 no. Um, oh, I can't. Uh, Emma Mackey from Sex Education. Mm. She oh can do it. yeah, she's okay. perfect. There we go. She is perfect. <laughs> See, there you go. She can play the young. Yeah, she plays the young. You've summoned this into existence. <laughs> I think I want to. I want to will this. In. I'll call Christy. We'll see what we can do. Yeah. Fantastic. All right. I think that is exactly the place where we need to end this. Thank you so much, Norm. So Cam Maitland, thank you so much for joining us once again. Thanks for having me. I, I do want to point out uh, if people enjoy the performances of Charlotte Coleman, I, I highly suggest her her weird turn as a child star uh, in both the Nightmare. Uh, uh, John Pertwee show Wurzel Gummidge uh, <laughs> and uh, also her weird turn is kind of a Dennis the Menace type Marmalade Atkins just google it on YouTube you will enjoy her uh, performances as, as a young woman she also did this lovely series with Dylan Moran called How Do You Want Me Now I think uh. or How Do You Like No How Do You Want Me Now uh, just like a year or two before she died and you can see so much potential and it's just it, yeah. it is it's heartbreaking to watch her in like it's heartbreaking to revisit four weddings and see this just this this woman who is so alive and so present and so funny and to know that like this is probably the last you'll see of her it's totally. just a heartbreaker totally. yeah no she's absolutely amazing and with that norm wilner how do people find more of your work because obviously they're wanting going to want to hear more of you. you're pretty <laughs> yeah. ubiquitous but give us some well <laughs> i i exist in all spaces and times uh <laughs> simultaneously uh you can find me well i write for nowtoronto.com i'm the senior film writer for now magazine you've got my podcast uh someone else's movie which I don't know when this is coming out, but it's coming up on 350 episodes, which is just mm. wild to me. Uh, I also produce a, and host a podcast for now called Now What, which you can find pretty much everywhere you find your podcasts. Uh, and I'm on Twitter at Norm Wilner, where I complain a lot about politics because <laughs> I have no choice. Because <laughs> if you don't yell on Twitter, where else are you going to yell when yeah, people I'll just, hear you? I'll just stroke out and be found, <laughs> found dead in a corner. Okay, and you can join us again next week when we look at a movie that features a very gifable popcorn-chomping Sam Neill. And we're joined <laughs> by special guest Brendan Ross. It's Mouth of Madness and De La Morte De La More, a.k.a. <gasps> Cemetery Man. That's coming up oh. next week. It's How a good am I one. not doing that? Uh, it was so good. <laughs> Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Want to email the podcast? You can do so at podcast at hollywoodsuite.ca. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial free. Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen on four HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cameron Maitland. And today featured Norm Wilner and Cam Maitland as guests. Supervising producer is Ryan Main. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Creative consultant is Emily Gagne. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.